So this summer, we have been going through a series on relationships. And really, our goal is to think about how relationships, whether it's uh, dealing with singleness or dating or marriage or sex or divorce or so on, how all of that relates to the Lord and, and how we can get biblical wisdom from it all. And so we began the series by talking about how God is the originator of all of our relationships, that actually there was a relationship in eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a love beyond anything we could ever imagine, and that God is our example in every relationship. And then we talked about how God has this radical and beautiful vision for singleness, that sometimes the church misunderstands the purpose of singleness and the calling of singleness. And elevates marriage to a place that it was never meant to be elevated to. Then after that, we talked about dating. And we talked about how dating, strictly speaking, is not a biblical concept, but there's lots of biblical wisdom that we can gain from the scriptures and just talked about really practical ways to go about dating. Then we had a worship night. And in the previous two weeks, we have split up guys and girls just to talk through the various topics that have come up in this series and just have more intimate conversation. And tonight, we are kicking off kind of a two-part mini-series, kind of focused in on marriage. And so tonight, I'm going to focus on more of the theological side of marriage. Just really what it means is we're going to try to be clear on what does the Bible actually teach about marriage. That's our goal for tonight. And we're going to look at, from the beginning to the end of Scripture, how marriage is meant to be a picture of the gospel. And then next week, Jay and Jane are going to lead, and they're going to talk about the practical side of marriage. So one of their goals in that discussion is going to be dispelling certain myths about marriage. Sometimes, with the best of intentions, the church can so elevate marriage, and and especially folks of our age group, we can so elevate marriage because it's such a deep desire for us that we can have this rosy picture of it that's not actually realistic, that would put a weight on our future spouse that they were never meant to bear. But yet, I also want us to be able to, to think through next week ways in which marriage is incredibly beautiful and have just an accurate picture of it. And Jay and Jane have so much wisdom to share. And they're going to also rely on the wisdom of some of the newlyweds in the room as well. Um, So think this week, again, more theology. We're clear on the teaching of Scripture. And the next week will be more practical and application. So typically, I would try to have a lot of application and messages. But if you don't feel a lot in this message, it's not because I'm neglecting. It's because next week is all application. So we want to be clear on what marriage is from Scripture. And then next week, we can talk through some practical realities. Like I said, I want us to be clear about what the Bible believes about marriage. And so let me just give you, if you're a note taker, this is your clear definition about what marriage is. Marriage, according to scripture, is a covenant relationship of love between one man and one woman for the purpose of procreation and picturing the gospel to the world for the glory of God. It's a mouthful. Let me read it one more time. Marriage is a covenant relationship of love between one man and one woman for the purpose of procreation and picturing the gospel to the world for the glory of God. That is your biblical definition of marriage. That is your biblical definition of marriage. So here's what I want us to do before we go any further, before we dive into more of what the Bible has to say about marriages. We've just heard the biblical definition of marriage. But I want us to talk about what kind of a more secular or cultural definition of marriage would be. Like if you just talk to your average non-Christian friend, or you think about the messages that come forth in culture and in the media you consume, 
How do you think a secular person would define marriage? What do you think our world says about a definition of marriage? I want you to talk about that at your tables for a few minutes, and we're going to get some answers because I want us to see the distinction between those two definitions. So talk to your tables about your, our culture, our world's definition of marriage, and then we will dive into the message. As we said, just to kind of say the definition one more time, I hope you're going to hear this multiple times. Okay, think about kind of that secular view of marriage. And then this is the Bible's definition. Marriage is a covenant relationship of love between one man and one woman for the purpose of procreation and picturing the gospel to the world to the glory of God. That's the Bible's definition of marriage. And the reason we can talk about it so confidently is because God is the one who gave us marriage. And the scriptures tell us the story of actually the very first wedding. Maybe you've never thought about this passage this way, but in order for us to understand what marriage is, we need to go all the way back to the beginning. So if you have your Bibles, turn or tap with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 18. So Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18, we're going to read through verse 25. So remember, this is, in in Scripture, there's a couple creation accounts. You have kind of the, the first creation account, and you've got Genesis 1, and God is saying, okay, let us make man in our image, male and female, he made them. And it says, go out into the earth and be fruitful and multiply. And then, you know, and man has dominion over all the animals. And then in Genesis 2, we get more detail. And so God has created Adam, but at this moment, Eve does not exist yet. And look with me at what happens, Genesis 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast out of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, whatever he called them, that was their name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So... The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he was slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. That is a picture of the very first wedding ceremony. And commenting on all of this, Puritan pastor Matthew Henry says this, The woman was made out of the rib out of the side of Adam not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. What can we glean from this passage about marriage, the very first wedding ceremony? One is that marriage is a gift from God. It is possible for this world to exist in one sense without marriage. God could have created it that way. And yet God, seeing Adam, seeing Adam, it is not good for you to be alone. He made a helper fit for him, a companion for him. So marriage is this gracious gift from God. And I think it's important for us to realize that God 
created marriage, and therefore, he gets to define what marriage is, the rules surrounding it, and the purpose of marriage. Let me say that again. Because God created marriage, he is the one that gets to define what it is. No one else. God is the one that created it. He gets to set the rules. If you make up a game, you're the one that gets to make the rules. And so it's important for us to remember that. Marriage is just not whatever the society we're in says it is. It's what Scripture says it is. And here's the detail maybe you've never thought about before. Notice that this is Genesis chapter 2. Sin, human sin, does not enter the world until Genesis chapter 3. So that means marriage actually existed before the fall. Marriage existed before the fall. Maybe you've never thought about it that way. Marriage is a good gift. It's not a concession from God. It's a good and gracious gift, and it existed before sin ever entered the world. Think about that. That is just, when, the first time I realized it, it blew my mind. One of the things you also notice, if we're just going to make some more observations about the passage, is that Adam has a deep and loving and abiding affection for Eve. I mean, you just think, well, it's harder to tell from the English, although you can get a feel from it, but the Hebrew, like, Adam is exclaiming, like, at last, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He's like, thank you, God, finally. I mean, he is in awe. He is so thankful for Eve. I mean, this is like deep and abiding affection and love. So from the beginning, you, you see Adam with this beautiful love for Eve. I think another thing you notice about marriage from this passage is the complementarity between husband and wife. It's a core part of what marriage is, and it's part of what makes marriage work. They're fit for one another. They're meant for one another. And sometimes we don't think of marriage that way. And it doesn't mean that there is one certain role for a man, one certain role for a woman, and it only, ha it only has to work this way. But it is to say that the beauty of marriage is, is that there is this complementary companionship going on. And they are made for one another. Now, here's what I'll, I'll clarify, because some of you might be thinking, okay, yeah, the Bible says this about marriage, but if I'm honest, the woman being called a helper kind of rubs me the wrong way. And I can understand that. I can imagine for some of you, say, what, what am I, is that all I'm good for, is to be a helper? Just before we get confused by that, again, this is my one plug. If you, if you go to Bible college or seminary, or you want to invest in Bible study, learning the original languages can be helpful for this reason. The word used to describe helper, the Hebrew word, which is azer, it's also used to describe God multiple times in the Old Testament. So this is not a derogatory term. This is a beautiful thing. Multiple times in Deuteronomy and the Psalms and Exodus, God is actually said to be a helper. He is the help for his people in a time of need. He is the one providing for them, loving them, coming alongside them. So this is not a derogatory term to be considered a helper at all. Actually, it's this beautiful, beautiful thing. And then another observation, if we connect this back to Genesis 1, verses 26 and 28, we find out this, that we're reminded that because God makes man and woman into his own image, what does he then say? After this, he says, their purpose is to fill the earth and multiply and have dominion over the earth. So it's a reminder for us that procreation is a core part of marriage. Children are an important part of marriage. And why am I bringing this point up? Our world, our culture, tries to separate out children and marriage. Now, I'm not saying that the moment you get married, you need to conceive on your wedding night and you have 30 kids and become a Puritan family. I'm not saying any of that, just to be clear. But 
I think our world, partly as a byproduct of the sexual revolution, partly as a byproduct of the technology that we now have, tries to separate out sex from procreation and marriage from procreation. And it turns sex and an important part of marriage really into just our own pleasure. We just do it to gratify our desire in the moment. There's no forethought of the purpose of sexuality in marriage and intimacy in marriage. Because there's a beautiful picture going on. And we're going to talk more about this in a future week when we address the topic of sex. But just my point is, you can't separate out procreation from marriage in, in the Christian faith. From the beginning, part of what it means to be man and woman to be married is that you are to be fruitful and multiply if you are a married couple. And one of the things I notice on social media trends is you will find a certain kind of person who maybe they and their spouse, they just got married, they're in their 20s, they have no serious financial obligations, they make okay money at work, and all they do is travel around, maybe they're travel bloggers, or they're just, you know, every other post is about, okay, I'm in Paris for the week, and you're like, how did you afford Paris at a 24-year-old, you know, what the heck? Um, And you realize there's a whole movement of folks of the young marriage with no kids, that actually the kids would just cramp their lifestyle. And actually, I would argue that for many of them, the desire not to have children is not a kind of thought through decision. It's like, you're cramping my style. And I think it actually takes away from the point that part of what it means to bring children to the world is that there are sacrifices, but it is a beautiful and rewarding process. And so we'll talk more about this in a future week. But just my point being is that you can't separate out procreation and marriage. And the Bible is clear about that, despite all the technological advances we might have in our own culture. And just to reiterate one more time, as we think about observations, marriage is a good gift from God. Marriage is a good gift from God. And what's more, okay, so we think about that Genesis passage and the first wedding ceremony and all the the truths there is Jesus believes the exact same things about marriage. You cannot separate what Jesus believes about marriage from what is taught in the beginning. And that's an important point. And Jesus will affirm this. Matthew 19, uh, verses 4 to 6, he's asked about marriage and divorce. And what does he say? Jesus answers, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, quoting Genesis. So, Jesus says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Or the King James, bring asunder. So Jesus affirms that marriage is a covenant relationship of love between one man and one woman for the purpose of procreation and picturing the gospel to the world for the glory of God. You can't separate out Jesus' teaching from the Old Testament's teaching. And you'll notice that people that start a theological slide will try to separate out and say, well, what Jesus really meant was he just wanted two people committed to one another. No. Jesus explicitly goes back to the beginning in Genesis. And he says marriage is between a man and a woman. It's for this covenant of love picturing the gospel and God's love for the world. So Jesus believes the same things about marriage that the Old Testament does. So that's kind of some introduction We've talked about where marriage came from and Jesus views a marriage and some basic observations about the first marriage. And so I want us to stop for a little more table talk. So here's the next question I want you to talk about your tables. How does our secular culture's view of marriage differ from the Bible's view of marriage that we've talked about up to this point? So we define the secular view of marriage. We define a more biblical view of marriage. How do those two views of marriage uh, differ? 
And again, it may seem obvious, but the reason I'm asking this is I want us to be able to be alert and aware and discerning so that we understand that we need to separate what the Bible says about marriage from what our world says. So talk about that at your tables for a few minutes. We'll get an answer or two, and then we will continue on. All right, let's go ahead and bring it back in. And I just want to offer one clarification uh, before we get some answers. To be clear, as we talk about procreation and sexuality and marriage, obviously if someone has a medical issue, you know, that, that, that's a different scenario. But, uh, just, so just to be clear, more what I'm getting at is I think there is a sense in which a decision not to have children from some people, if they are honest, has nothing to do with a biblical or theological reason. It's just that they don't want someone cramping their style. This is a totally different conversation if there's a medical issue. Or, I've known some missionaries, for example, that the country they were going to be doing missions in was so dangerous that at that season of life it didn't make sense for them to have children. And so that's a different thing than saying, I don't get to travel to Paris if I have this kid, and so we're not going to have children. So does that make sense? And so, to be clear, you know, we're talking in broad brushstrokes, but part of the reason I think even that point sounds so controversial is because we never hear that anywhere. The idea that procreation and marriage are tied together because our culture and the sexual revolution have so separated them. So we can talk more afterwards, but I just want to offer that clarification. So let's get one or two answers just for the sake of time. Quick, raise your hand, give us your name, shout out your answer. Yes. So Nick is saying the secular definition may not specify between a man and a woman or the number of men or women. That's a great point. So we've talked about the beginning of marriage, where it was created. And, and you've heard me say multiple times that the purpose of marriage is to picture the gospel. And I'm not just pulling that, you know, out of my own head. That, that's coming straight from Scripture. So I want us to look at this in detail. And so if you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Some of you probably would have guessed, like, that's where we're going to start. But we're getting there. Ephesians chapter 5. And we are going to start in verse 22. And we are going to see this beautiful picture of God's purpose in marriage and how marriage is meant to picture the gospel. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22, says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then catch this, quoting Genesis 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then catch this, this is the most important sentence. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So think about that. Paul has just explained the, the beauty of marriage and, and all, all of its intricacy. And then he goes on to say, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It refers to Christ's love for his church, his sacrifice for them, the gospel of salvation that the church gets to receive because of Christ's finished work. So marriage is meant to be this picture of the gospel. I just want you to stop for a second and think about that. That is a huge, huge honor that we get to participate in. That your marriage one day, if God calls you into marriage, 
is meant to be a picture of Jesus' love for his church. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And it changes the way we think about marriage. It changes the way we act in marriage, the way we treat our spouse in marriage. But I think for us, one of the important things is we have to understand what the gospel is in order to understand how marriage pictures the gospel. And I don't care how long you've been in church, it is good for us to be reminded of the beauty of the gospel and what the gospel is. So maybe for you tonight, maybe you've never heard of the gospel or you are newer to the faith. You're just checking out this Christianity thing. But let me tell you the best news you have ever heard and will ever hear. God created man and woman, us, in his own image so that we might be in relationship with him and in fellowship with him. And yet humanity said, no, God, we know a better way. We want to sit on the throne, not, in, not allowing you to. And so we sinned. We said, God, we know a better way. God, we, we trust other things. We love other things more than you. And so humanity sinned, and it severed our relationship with God. God is a holy God. And when we are sinful people, sin deserves punishment in order for God to be just. And so we were separated from God. And yet God loved us so much that despite all of our sin, despite all of our rebellion, despite choosing a people for himself, and they still worshiped other idols because they wanted to sit on the throne, God says, you know what, I love you so much, I'm going to send my very own son Jesus to pay the price for your sin. And so at the cross, Jesus Christ, after having lived a perfect life and fulfilling the demands of the law, dies the death that we deserve to die, pays the price that we deserve to pay for our sin, atones for it all, truly God, truly man. And after his death, he rises up again from the dead on the third day in victory over sin and Satan and death and all the powers of hell. And he ascended to glory to sit at the right hand of God. He is ruling and he is reigning and he will come again to judge the living and the dead and bring his people to himself. That's the best news you could ever hear. And the beauty of it is, it is for you. If you would say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I have made mistakes. I have put other things in your place on the throne. But God, I'm saying, I'm confessing my sin. If you would do that and you would believe that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead and he is your Lord and Savior, you can be saved. You can have all the benefits that God earned for you in Jesus' perfect life and at the cross and in his resurrection. It doesn't matter the mistakes you made in your past. It doesn't matter the skeletons that are in your closet. I know you're probably thinking, okay, but Caleb, if you knew the mistakes that I had made, if you knew the way I had hurt other people, there's no way God could love me. That's crazy. Because before you ever took a breath, God knew, Jesus knew every single sin you would ever commit before you ever committed it. And yet he still chose to die for you. He loves you that much. Nothing about your sin is a surprise to him. He welcomes you with open arms if you would trust in him as Lord and Savior. In fact, your sin is the only thing that actually qualifies you to go to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus didn't come to save perfect people. So if you're here tonight and you're perfect, we have nothing to offer you. There are far better places you could be. If you are perfect, we have nothing to offer you. But if you're a sinner, if you are messed up like me, we have everything to offer you because of what Jesus has done. Your sin is the thing that qualifies you to go to him. He came to seek and to save the lost. It's the best news we could ever hear. And so this is what our marriages are supposed to picture, this sacrificial love of Jesus for his bride, the church. And that changes everything about how we think about marriage. And so here's, here's my question for you. Here, here's what I want us to talk about for a second. 
as you think about the gospel, and as you think about the, this topic of marriage and marriage picturing the gospel, what are some ways that you think marriage can picture Jesus' sacrificial love for his church? Read back through Ephesians 5, 22 to 32 if you need to, but talk about a few ways that you think marriage can be a picture of the gospel. Talk with it at your tables, and then we will continue on to get ready to close out the message. One of the things I think that's important for us to realize is we think about a biblical view of marriage is that marriage is a covenant. This is one significant difference I would draw between a secular view of marriage and a biblical view of marriage. Oftentimes in our world's, world's cultures, they view marriage as a contract. And a contract is something written to be broken. You're just looking out for you and your own interests in that. There's no sacrifice. That's not the point. Ver, versus marriage is a covenant, which is a completely different thing. Malachi chapter 2, if we have more time, we could look through this. Malachi chapter 2 explicitly talks about marriage as a covenant. And for those that aren't familiar with this biblical theme of, of a covenant, I encourage you, go back and read Genesis 15 with Abram. And if I were to just summarize what happens in Genesis 15, it's this. God chooses Abram, and God has this amazing future. You know, you hear about, he goes on to be called Abraham, you know, Father Abraham. So this amazing story with, with this man that God calls up out to be the father of his people. And he's going to make a covenant with him. It says, even though you and your wife can't have children, I'm going to make it so that you can have children. And you are actually going to be the father to my people and a blessing to the world. And God goes and makes a covenant with Abram. And in a covenant ceremony, what you have is the two parties would take these animals, often birds or other things, and they would cut them in half and lay them out. Um, and so you would walk through these animals. And the purpose was to say that if you break your end of the covenant, this is what would happen to you. This is a punishment. This is how serious this is. And both parties would walk through. So the first party saying, I'm going to walk through. If I break my end of the covenant, then, then I'm as good as dead. That's how serious this is. And the other party does the same. But in this covenant ceremony, Abram actually falls asleep. The sun goes down. And only God walks through the animals. What's that signify? It signifies that God says if God himself doesn't hold up his end of the deal in the covenant, he'll be punished, he'll be killed. But because God is the only one to walk through, it also means that God is saying, Abram, even if you don't hold up your end of the deal, I will be punished and killed on your behalf. It's one of the most beautiful precursors to the gospel in all the Bible. It is amazing. A covenant ceremony is this weighty, weighty ceremony which is one of those reasons why something like no-fault divorce, we're going to talk about divorce in a future week, but no-fault divorce for reasons that are outside of what Scripture lists as reasons for divorce, uh, if it is purely reasons of comfort and preference, lack of devotion and desire, you understand how anti-gospel, anti-covenant those things are. Because covenant and the gospel are about sacrifice for one another, love for one another in sickness and in health, poverty and in riches. So the covenant ceremony is this beautiful picture for us in marriage because when you marry someone, you are making a covenant to them to say, I'm going to be by your side no matter what. It's a weighty thing. It is a weighty thing. One of the other things I think we have to grasp as we think about marriage is that marriage shows God's joy and love for us. Not just love in an abstract sense, but it shows his joy for us. And marriage is a reminder of our changed eternity in God. 
our changed standing in God. And one of my favorite passages in all the Bible about marriage is in Isaiah 62, verses 1 to 5. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me there. Isaiah chapter 62, verses 1 to 5. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. And it's this beautiful picture of marriage and the way that marriages picture our relationship with God. It says this, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land shall be called married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. And then catch this. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. Think about that. Have you ever thought about the idea of God rejoicing over you? One of my favorite parts of my job as, as a pastor, someone that gets to officiate weddings and different things, is that moment in the ceremony when the doors open and the bride starts to walk down. And of course it's amazing. The bride looks beautiful in her dress. It's so cool to watch everyone's face as they, they see her and acknowledge her. But actually my favorite part of that is because I'm right there up front, I like looking at the groom. And I'll be honest, I, I, one, of the, one of the coolest things is watching when the groom is just overcome with emotion. Now I've seen times where guys, these big tough guys, football players just burst into tears. I have seen times where these guys are so giddy, it's like they're bouncing for joy. They're so excited. They waited their whole life for this moment. They're so in awe of their wife. That is exactly how God looks at you as a bride of Christ. Think about that. It doesn't matter your sin. It doesn't matter your shame. If you have given your life to Jesus, you are part of the bride of Christ. And God looks at you that way. He is like, he is like that groom that is like crying. He's bouncing for joy. And he's like, that is my wife. I love her. I would give anything for her. That's how Jesus feels about you. If you've never thought about that, let me, let me just reassure you. God loves you more than anyone else could ever possibly love you. That is what we have to look forward to. And that is what our marriage and our marriage ceremonies actually get to picture. So the next time you're at a wedding, I just want you to think about all of the ways we see the gospel in the ceremony. Because it's not just marriage that pictures the gospel. It's even the ceremony itself, especially ones that are kind of steeped in Christian tradition. So, for example, when we see this in Isaiah 62, when you get married, ladies, traditionally you would change your last name. You take on a new name. And you take on the name of your groom. And so what happens when you come to Christ? You take on a new name. You, you become the bride of Christ. You take on the name Christian. You are marked by Jesus. You join his family. You also see it in that through marriage, the bride will cease to be alone and will enter into intimate community with her husband for as long as she shall live. And in the same way, because of what Jesus has done for us in taking in our sin and punishment on the cross, we never have to be alone when we trust in his promises and become part of the bride of Christ. He even gives us his Holy Spirit to be with us so we'd never be alone. In marriage, because the groom pursued the bride and declared his love for her, the bride walks down the aisle pure and spotless in her gorgeous white dress. And in the same way, Jesus 
uh, pursued his bride and declared his love for her so that she can walk down the aisle of eternity to him, pure and righteous, in fact, clothed in his very righteousness. In marriage, the groom loves his bride so much that there's nothing that could ever keep him from declaring his love and affection for her and making her his bride. Likewise, there is no obstacle, not even sin, Satan, death, and all the powers of hell that could keep Jesus from declaring his love and affection for his bride, the church. And in the marriage ceremony, the ring represents the unending, unbroken love of the groom and the bride for one another. And likewise, Jesus has this unending, unbroken love for us. Think about it. When you get married, you and your spouse become one, and everything that is yours becomes theirs, and everything that is theirs becomes yours. Same thing happens in the gospel with us and Jesus. This is what theologians call imputation. You don't even remember that word, but this is what it's called. We receive all of Jesus' perfect righteousness. That's given to us. That is our account. And Jesus takes on all of our sin and pays the price for our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For our sake God made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what happens in the gospel. Even the marriage ceremony is a beautiful picture of, of the gospel. Our marriages are meant to be a beautiful picture of the gospel. Our marriages are meant to picture the gospel to the world. And part of what that means in picturing the gospel to the world in our marriages is helping our spouses come to look more like Jesus. One of the best ways to be a good witness for Jesus is to live like him. And in marriage, you get to help your spouse do that. And your spouse will help you do that. They will sanctify you. And so one of the the core parts of uh, when I do a wedding ceremony is something called the charges. This is a pretty traditional thing. A lot of modern ceremonies don't do this, but this was kind of historic in the church. There would be a charge given to the groom and a charge given to the bride and then one to them both about the purpose in marriage. And it talks about this idea of helping their spouse look more like Jesus to be a picture of the gospel. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually read the charges that I read in a wedding ceremony. I'm going to use the, the exact charges I use for Paige and Eli's wedding. Um, I got to have the honor of officiating their wedding a while back, and uh, this is exactly what I read to them. So you're going to hear their names, and that's why I'm, I'm saying that. Think about this as your roles in marriage. So Eli, I'm talking to the groom. Let's say, Eli, your calling in marriage is to lead and to love Paige in such a way that she comes to find independence a burden because she show, so enjoys her fellowship and companionship with you. As you lead and love her as Christ loves his church, remember that she is now your primary ministry. No other human relationship you have holds as much weight as your relationship with Paige. Even now, be diligent in putting forward practices and rhythms to keep yourself above reproach, to fight temptation, and to honor Paige. As you lead her, don't be domineering. God has a particular anger against the abuse of authority. But God's word tells us that good leadership and the right use of authority honors God and leads to flourishing. Be tender, loving, compassionate, and cherish her with all of your heart. Then I'd turn to Paige, right? And I would say, Paige, your calling in marriage is to love and respect Eli in such a way that he comes to find independence a burden because he so enjoys his fellowship and companionship with you. Honor and respect him. Sharpen him and cherish him with all of your heart. Paige, as you submit to Eli, your submission does not mean silence or going along with his each and every idea. 
Instead, it means lovingly following his lead and helping him as you turn from sin and helping him love you even better than he has before. You and Eli are a team, and you have the immense privilege of ministering to the world together. And then I would turn to them both, and I would say this. Now, finally, to you both. You both will certainly soon learn just how self-centered you really are. That's encouraging, right? You know? It's what every married couple soon learns after uh, each member has spent most of their life living primarily for themselves. There will be things that you've always done a certain way and that now you have to do together. Even something as simple as determining how to load the dishwasher can be a cause for an argument if your spouse used to, is used to doing it a different way. Soon, you will both leave your father and mother and become one flesh. Your job is not first to think about what you want or what is best for you, but rather your spouse's needs and what would be best for them. Make it your goal to serve your spouse as best as you can. Cherish them with all of your might and don't let the sun go down in your anger. Fight for joy together. You each will be a primary means for sanctification and growth in the life of your spouse. My prayer is that in 20, 30, 40, Lord willing, 50 years from now, you will each look a whole lot more like Jesus because of your marriage to one another. Strive to picture the gospel in all you do and get ready to embark on one of the greatest journeys of your lives. And then I always close with this. Finally, the way to love one another best is to love the Lord most. The way to find deeper joy in one another is to find deeper joy in God. You are not your spouse's savior. Don't put a burden on your spouse that they can't bear. Make Jesus your true rock. And if you strive to keep Jesus at the center of your marriage, you will not only have more joy and contentment, but you will look more like Jesus individually and together for all the world to see, which is the true purpose of marriage in the first place. That is our job in marriage. We want to help our spouses look more like Jesus. They're going to help us do the same, and we're going to work together as a team to be a picture of the gospel for the whole world to see. Tonight, we've talked a lot about the similarities between uh, our marriages and the gospel, but I actually think it's important for us to close by noting one significant way that the gospel differs from our marriages. During the wedding ceremony, if it's traditional at all, the couples will take their vows and they will profess their love for one another until death does them part. But you see, the incredible thing is that in the quintessential marriage itself, the marriage of Christ and his bride, it actually took death to bring them together. And because of the resurrection of Christ to defeat death forever, till death do us part means that we as the church will never be without the infinite love of our groom Jesus. Our earthly marriages will one day end, but our relationships with Jesus never will. And therefore, marriage should point to the eternal reality of the gospel, which was the point from the very beginning. Marriage was given to us in a gracious gift by God in the garden before sin, and marriage then pictures Jesus' love for us despite our sin, that if we would put our faith in him, we could be part of the bride of Christ forever. And I'm not just using that word forever flippantly because we're going to close by reading Revelation 19 verses 6 to 9 because you will see that this marriage is forever with Jesus. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, catch this. 
Then I heard like a voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, hallelujah, because our Lord God, the almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear bright and pure for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the lamb. And he also said to me, these words of God are true. Our earthly marriages are a picture of our heavenly marriage that will last forever, a picture of the gospel. And that shapes everything about our view of marriage. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his work in the gospel, his work to die for us, his work to to live a perfect life for us, his work to atone for our sin and defeat sin and death. And God, we are thankful that in him we have new life and hope. And God, we are thankful for the awesome privilege of being a picture of that love, your love for your bride, the church, in our earthly marriages. God, would you help us walk forward with the mindset of honoring you, glorifying you in our marriages? Would you help it shape the way we, we, we think about a spouse and being in a relationship? Would you help it shape the way we treat all those around us? Would you help it shape the way we fight in hard moments in a future marriage? Would you remind us of the beauty of the gospel and Christ's covenant commitment to us when we are on our knees in prayer because our marriages are in tire straits, tough straits one day. We're tired from uh, watching the kids in the middle of the night. We are tired from family drama. We're tired from a loss of a job or a cancer diagnosis. And we can remember, God, that we have have a Savior that is committed to us. We should remain committed to our spouses. And God, we should picture the love of Jesus for his church. God, help our marriages be this clear picture of Jesus. And because we enter into those relationships, may we look more like Jesus himself. Help us not idolize marriage. Help us not put it on a pedestal it was never meant to be put on. But God, help us honor marriage like Hebrews 13 tells us. Thank you for the picture it is of the gospel. We pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.